Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read a handful of verses from 7 down uh, to 17. So I'm going to start with verse 7 and verse 8. God's Word says this, And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. I'm going to skip down to verse 11. And Josiah the father of Jehoiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiah and the, the, was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Uh, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. And then jump it down to verse 16. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called, the Christ, who is called Christ. So all the generations for A from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the work you do to orchestrate time and history and people and nations and places and governments and churches and families and um, children. God, you work to orchestrate so many moving pieces over such a long, long period of time that we have uh, nothing to do but just stand in awe of how great you are. God, thank you for a moment to come before you and come before your word and consider uh, your greatness, your majesty, your power, your providence, your love. And uh, God, as we open this, your word together today, may we be attentive to your spirit and may you change our lives in the way that only you can. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. I have a... Uh, a question for you that I hope doesn't cause any arguments over lunch, but uh, what does what is the definition of on time to you? That is a uh, a debate, depending on who you are and then who you ask. I'm going to try to get through this part of my sermon real fast before my wife comes back in. She's helping with kids. If I can get through this where she doesn't hear this, it'll be better. Um, because in our household, the definition of on time is is. It's, it varies, let's just say that. Uh, and that may be true in your household. It may be true based on different generations or different cultures, whatever else it may be. To some people, whether it's just you know, how they were raised or their generation or culture or whatever, to be, to be 15 minutes early is to be on time, right? And to be on time is to be late, right? Well, there are others of us uh, who, who realize that you put a time on a, on a calendar for a reason, and, and that's the time you should be there. And really, you know, in the grand scheme of eternity, what is a few more minutes if we just, you know, spend time hanging out waiting for the others of us to show up? Uh, some people, it's just a, just a cultural thing. So when Aaron and Perry make their way to Mexico uh, for the Joy Box trip, they will find. I, I am not a prophet, uh, but I have been on these trips, and I anticipate how this is going to go. We had, they, the, the, our, our ministry partners in Mexico plan these amazing joy box events and they will have some scheduled time. We'll call it three o'clock. And so our team will show up a couple hours early, begin setting up. And it really doesn't matter if they're like totally ready to go by three, because really it's going to be like three 30, maybe four o'clock before it gets started. And I've, I haven't quite figured out what the, what the like 
thing is that starts it. I don't know if it's like the most number of people, like they're waiting for a certain number of people to show up, or if it's just like certain key people that have to be there, and that's the thing. So it could be 334, who knows? But it's going to start eventually. But like I said, sometimes in our own households can be the most, uh, most point of stress, most point of tension. You know, um, in, our, in our marriage, uh, one of us, uh, who I won't say, uh, likes things to be, you know, we said three, it's going to be three. You know, others of us, I like to, you know, just say it'll be three-ish and we'll be okay, right? <laughs> usually, usually it works out uh, okay, but uh, some people don't, don't see it quite that way. Look, I made it all the way through and she's not back yet. So. <laughs> when we have different expectations on what on time means, it can lead to tension, right? The rub is not necessarily what time it actually started. It's that we had different expectations coming in. So let me ask you this about expectations of being on time. What does it mean for God to be on time? When is God on time? We're probably all, you know, Jesus-y enough and Bible-y enough that we, we would never say God is late. Of course, God is God. He invented time. He is never late. However, if we are honest with ourselves... There are many times that we wanted him to be a little earlier, or later, I guess, sometimes. But we, we had an idea for how God's timing should have worked in our mind, and then it didn't quite go that way. Those different expectations, different ways that we saw something coming to be on time can lead to some tension. This month, we've been looking at this family tree uh, of Jesus and looking o- over the way God has orchestrated this family for a very specific purpose, a, n- a number of purposes, but according to his purpose. And so for the first week, we took just the very first verse out of Matthew chapter 1, eight words in the original language. The next week, we jumped to a paragraph, five verses or so. Today, we're covering just two paragraphs, it's only 11 verses. But I started thinking and looked it up. The course of these seven verses, some 28 or so generations, uh, cover a period uh, of seven historical books in the, in, in the Bible. So from 2 Samuel through 1 and 2 Kings, Chronicles, and Ezra and Nehemiah, that period also happens to be when the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes were written, and every one of the prophets. So I'm only covering 11 verses today, but I'm also covering 27 out of the 39 books of the Old Testament today. So you're probably hoping that I know what it means to be get out on time right now, but I promise we'll do our best. Uh, Jesus had a really big family tree, and the reason I wanted to take kind of a a bigger section here, well, one, December is running out of, you know, time, but we are, we, I want to take this bigger section of of Jesus's genealogy to see the way that God moves over time, and to see the way that God moves things in a certain way according to his plan and purposes in his timing. One of the questions we've asked about this family tree, about this lineage, is is there space for us on this tree? Am, can I be in this family? And if so, how? And so as we continue with that question, today I want to add to that, when? What's his timing? What's it like? What is he, how is he moving so that we can fit on this tree? How can we find our place and when? Looking at these at least 20, 28 generations or so, I hope we can begin to understand God's timing and when he shows up, and how, and why. We, of course, don't pretend to know the mind of God, uh, but when he does make it known, when he makes his purposes known, it's worth exploring that. 
And we'll see, as we expected, of course, God is always on time, even if that timing is a little different than we thought. The first generation mentioned in our passage today is from Solomon to his son Rehoboam. And I highlight this first one because this first one gives us an idea for the way that God's timing doesn't quite always go like we anticipate. Solomon, if you know much about Solomon, was the wisest king that there ever was. He wrote much of the book of Proverbs. He had a wealth beyond measure. And he, following the the promises and the plans that David had, had given him, his father, He built an incredible, glorious temple. It was a a, a pinnacle as far as the architectural uh, height of of this group of people, the people of Israel. An incredible celebration. And so Solomon had so much going for him. However, not all was good in his time. In the middle of all his wealth and influence and and opulence and all that he had, he took on quite a few wives, hundreds of them, and I'll let you insert your own joke about that here. I won't make one. Uh, his wives included so many women from other parts of the world that worshipped other gods. And so over time, he began to worship those other gods too. And so God told him that there is a punishment. Rightfully so, correct? If you are not worshipping the one true God, that is wrong. And justice should be served. And so God told him that. However, his timing was a little bit different than we might expect. God told Solomon, because of the promises I made to your father David and because of what he's done, I am not going to give the punishment to you. I'm going to wait a generation and see about your son Rehoboam. When Rehoboam became king, he turned from following the Lord. So just as God anticipated and expected and prophesied, God brought judgment on Solomon's son for the things that Solomon had done because Rehoboam continued in his sin. When Rehoboam was king, 10 tribes out of the 12 left the nation of of Israel, became became Israel. Judah was the southern nation, southern part of the kingdom of Israel. And so they were now a divided nation. But the timing is strange. You look at Solomon, you look at his life, you look at his sin. Why would he wait? Why would he wait? Well, over the course of of this whole family tree and the whole course of the Bible, I think this is just one example of a pattern we see in the way that God moves. And that pattern is this. God patiently brings judgment right on time. God patiently brings judgment right on time. Long before God brought the punishment to Israel, dividing the nation, God could have ripped it away from Solomon. It could have been decades earlier that God brought this judgment, and yet He waited. In His grace, He waited. There are many examples throughout the kings where where God had said, if you continue in this and and do not repent, here's the punishment that comes. So you can never project backwards and say what would have happened, because we don't know. But Solomon theoretically could have repented, and this not happened in the way it did. God, in His grace, waited. He did not bring judgment immediately. Do you see that pattern in the way God moves? In God's grace, Adam and Eve lived past day whatever. On chapter, they lived past chapter 3. That was grace for God to wait patiently and not give them the judgment they deserved the first time, the full judgment they deserved on that day. God was patient with Solomon like He was patient with Adam and Eve. He gives people like Solomon the gift of not facing, facing the full punishment at the very moment they deserve it. 
He gave Solomon another generation. He gave them another opportunity. And as you go through the list of kings in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, etc., we find that this pattern continues over and over again. If you've read through those books, you start to notice that the way that these kings are introduced. They always get a couple sentence uh, explanation of whether they followed God or not. For example, uh, Abijah, it says in 1 Kings chapter 3, that he walked in all the sins that his father did, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. So he, he followed sinful fathers. He didn't follow the righteous father, father David. He followed in sin. But some of them are good. Uh, 2 Kings 18.3 about Hezekiah. It says, Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. King after king is introduced that way. Either they did right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did wrong in the eyes of the Lord. But if you go through and add it up, it doesn't, it doesn't head in the right direction. There are more bad kings than good ones. There are more kings who do not follow the Lord than who follow the Lord. Why, what's going on here? God could have, in His righteous, holy anger, wrath, right, rightfully so, could have ended the kingdom when Saul was king. He could have ended the people of Israel when David sinned with, against Bathsheba and Uriah. He could have ended the kingdom when Solomon came and brought all these other women in and started worshiping other people. There were so many times that he could have ended it. And yet God, in His incredible patience, His incredible love, waited to bring judgment, to give people the opportunity to repent. This is especially gracious considering the promises that had been given back generations before. Moses lived some 600 years before Solomon. So 600 years before we got to our passage where we pick up in, in verse 7 of Matthew 1. And God had told Moses in both Deuteronomy and Leviticus about a curse that was coming if they disobeyed. They were about to enter the promised land. And he says, I'm giving you all this, a land flowing with milk and honey. And you can come and you can dwell here and you can be my people. And I will bless you. I will be your God. You'll be my people. However, if you stop following me, I will remove you from this land. This land is a gift. It's, it's a present to you. I, you didn't earn this. It's a gift to you. And now that you are here as my people, I want you to walk with me. But I'm a holy God, he's saying, and this is a holy land. And if you do not follow me, you will leave. You know how long it took the people of God to break that command? Like one day. 600 years before Solomon. God was patient with Solomon's sin as he was patient for the 600 years before and 300 years after. It was 900 years from the time that Joshua, right after Moses, had gotten those commands, came into the promised land to the time when the people left the promised land. God is incredibly patient, incredibly slow to anger, incredibly generous to his people. The Lord famously is repeated frequently throughout the Old Testament. He, the way he described himself to Moses, he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the character of our God. He is patient. He is patient. I love the, the Hebrew idiom, for being slow to anger. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, God has a long nose. <laughs> and you go, what? You know, in our culture, a long nose, thanks to Pinocchio, we associate with lying. But in Hebrew, the, the idiom was about with your rage and the anger of your face, when it gets all red, you get so mad. If you have a long nose, that means it takes a long time for the anger to reach all the way out to the point of your nose. 
And so none of, it tra- none of our English translations say that because it would be confusing. But literally, it's a slowed anger. God has such a long nose. It is 900 years long so that before God pours out what the people deserve. God is so slow to anger. He is so patient with us. He does not deal in our time and in our way. He is patient with his people. God is holy. He cannot stand sin. So he will bring judgment, but he is so gracious to bring it in his time, in his way. 900 years after the people had entered the promised land, after all that they had done, especially after some of the last kings like Manasseh and all these people that had done awful things against God and against nation, their, own, their own people, sacrificing children, worshiping other gods, uh, all kinds of abuses of God's land, not keeping the Sabbath, on and on and on. They had rejected God over and over again. And so God's holiness cannot be abused forever. And he does bring judgment. And it would be unloving of God for him to just sit by forever and never bring the discipline we deserve. And so at a point, and Matthew marks this as one of the major divisions in history for God's people. Chapter uh, Matthew 1, verse 11, talking about one of the last kings, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So this is a a major marker in the people of Israel's history. And it would be hard for us to comprehend how dramatic this would have been for the people of Israel. They had come. This was the promised land. This was the gift. David had established Jerusalem as the capital. Solomon had built the temple. And yet, after all their sin, God's long patience, God sent, not just allowed, but he sent a foreign nation, Babylon, who did not worship him, to come and take over their land, knock down Jerusalem's city walls, and destroy the temple. This was devastating to the people of God. It was incredibly heartbreaking, and they were so confused about what it looks like for God's people to no longer have a city that's their own, a temple that's their own, a place that's their own. It was the judgment of God that had come to bring destruction and discipline to His people. So I'm sure that countless people throughout that time period wondered, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God allow this kind of destruction and wrath to be poured out? And now we can look back at that moment, of course, and see what some of the things God was doing. But in the middle of it, they probably were devastated. There were many were. They were so devastated. And as we look back on it, we can see God's patience and God's goodness, even in the wrath that he poured out. As you look back on that time period, we have so much of our Old Testament from just this very short window, about 70 years that the people were in exile, a couple you know, decades before and after, is an enormous amount of your Old Testament comes from that period. Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all of Daniel's life and his visions, all came out of this period. All these incredible hardships, Ezra and Nehemiah are just in the back end of this. And so, so much of this period reveals a lot about who God is, about His character, about His nature, about His redemptive purposes. And it shows that His, his work, His just, justice, His judgment was right on time. Fast forward some 600 years after that, when Christ came, one of the reasons He came was to bring judgment. He brought a sense of holiness and righteousness to the people of God. In some ways, he brought judgment to the hypocrisy of the religious rulers at the time. 
who did not recognize the Messiah, though he was right in front of them. He brought judgment on the Roman rulers. He brought judgment on uh, the inadequacies of that, that form of government. And most importantly, he brought judgment on Satan, on sin, on death. And you know when Jesus came? He came right on time. For thousands of years, people had been anticipating the Messiah. They had been waiting for the Messiah to come. And Christ comes finally, in some people's view, because they had been waiting. And they had been waiting and they had been waiting. And He came right on time. For all of us who believe in Jesus and turn from our sins, that judgment has been made on, on the cross. The judgment has been has been fully decided. The wrath has been poured out on Jesus instead of on us. Judgment has been already been taken care of. And it came right on time. Christmas is, is a time of, of Advent. We celebrate the coming, the Advent of Jesus. But we celebrate not just His first coming, but His second coming. And when Christ comes again, one of the, way, one of the reasons He will come is to bring judgment. And praise God that He is patient in bringing that full and final judgment. There are many times that we look around and we say, God, hurry up already. We are waiting. We're waiting for you to come and make all things right. We're waiting for peace on the world. We're waiting for all the evil to be taken away and all the diseases, all the cancer. And yet God in His patience, Romans 2.4, His kindness should lead us to repentance. God in His patience is choosing to tarry, to allow people to come to hear His message, to hear the good news and respond in faith and in repentance. God will be glorified in His time and in His way. His holiness will be upheld. People on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is the Lord. And in His patience, He's giving more and more people the, excuse me, the opportunity to see Him and to worship Him. That time of the, the exile in Babylon was, was deep and dark, discouraging for the people of God. And yet it was a time he was moving in big ways. A whole generation that had been carried off, that had been wondering what is God possibly doing by scattering his people throughout the world. And yet one generation later, in verse 12, we come to the name Zerubbabel, which takes us to another turning point in the history of God's people. Just like we can see the pattern of his patience over time in bringing judgment, I think Zerubbabel points us forward to another pattern that we see God at work. And that pattern is this. God providentially brings salvation, again, right on time. In God's patience, He brings judgment right on time. And in God's providence, He brings salvation right on time. God had raised up an enemy nation, Babylon, to come and destroy Jerusalem. And as unthinkable as that was, now that Israel was, was scattered and and uh, part of it was occupied. Another group of the people were all basically enslaved out in Babylon. They were looking around saying, how in the world can this, what, can, what can good can come now? Sure, there's no way. This foreign nation just, just destroyed us. We have no power on our own. We don't even have an army. How are we going to get back to Israel? There's just no way here, right? Seventy years after they had been into exile or so, God did something even more crazy. God sent another foreign army, the Persians, with King Cyrus, as he had prophesied before, to come and to wipe, in the, wipe out the Babylonians. And that king, the King Cyrus, he had a different strategy for occupying people. As opposed to scattering them, he wanted them back in their land so they could, he could get resources and other things, I'm sure. But he, a foreign guy who knows, does not know God, does not follow Israel's God, 
He gathered the people of Israel and sent them back to their land. It was a moment where God's people were praising him, saying, how in the world did God use a foreign pagan king to do his purposes? It only happens because of the providence of God. That God, in his incredible power and sovereignty and wisdom, can orchestrate kings and kingdoms and nations and governments and armies and all kinds of things to do his will. God is incredibly gracious in the way that he works with his people. His timing doesn't make sense to us. His timing never, we don't, we don't always understand what he's doing, but God works in amazing ways. Zerubbabel was one of the first groups to leave Babylon and come back to Israel to rebuild the, the nation, rebuild the capital, rebuild in the, in the capital city of Jerusalem. And that is a pattern we see all across the family tree of Jesus. Ezra 1 captures this moment uh, of glory as God's people are moving back into the nation of Israel. And Ezra and Nehemiah recount their stories of rebuilding this city and rebuilding the temple. And yet, as you read those stories, there's so much anticipation, but there's just a little bit of something missing too. As you read that, you remember back, if you've studied back through Solomon, how glorious this temple was. And you also remember about what happened when Solomon finished building the temple. You see, when Solomon finished building the first temple in Israel, God's, God's glory in the form of a cloud descended on the temple, and it was this breathtaking moment of awe and wonder as God's presence in a very visible way filled the temple. Do you know what happened when, when they finished the temple, when they came back from, from, Israel, from, from captivity back to Israel? When they finished it, not much happened. There was no cloud. There was no glory. God was with them, but it wasn't the same. There was something still missing. In fact, after a few more prophets and after they kind of got organized, God seems to kind of fall quiet. God was at work, of course. God's always at work. But there were no more prophets from the, for 400 years. But after the last prophet in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus, there were 400 years where we have no authoritative scripture from God's, in God's word. So sometimes in that last song we sang actually refers to this 400 years of silence, 400 years of waiting. God, where are you? God, I thought, I thought we, had, we had come back, we had built the temple, I thought this was all going to be great. I thought things were going to go back to the way they were with Solomon and the temple and the glory. And yet here we are, our temple's smaller, our people aren't quite as well organized, we're not in charge of the whole kingdom like we used to be. What's going on? In Matthew 1, from 13 to 15, so far before this point, we, we pretty much have a history. We know these people. But then there's this period where we get these lists of names and they, we have nothing about their stories. We know nothing about them. These are just obscure people of history that are in the lineage of Jesus, going back all the way to David and Abraham. But 400 years, a pretty obscure nothing, where God seems to just have been silent. And people are waiting once more. Are you waiting on anything right now? Does it feel like God is silent for you right now? None of us are 400 years old, but it may have felt like you've been waiting for that long, waiting for God to answer. God's timing sometimes doesn't line up with what we think His timing should be. And God's on the side of, I've, I've promised you, but you've got to wait. You've got to wait. God does show up in pretty amazing ways, but it's according to His time. When you read verse 17, that seems to be Matthew's point. There's some confusion about exactly how Matthew counts these three sets of 14 generations. So my encouragement to you is not to get overly caught up in the numbers here. 
but simply to recognize Matthew's making a clear point. Everything happened at just the right time as God intended it to happen. See God's salvation. See God's providence. See God's wisdom. That God is orchestrating the events of all of human history according to His will. I know it may seem like just a list of names that we're just reading and sounds, you know, boring, but I hope you actually see in this list a tapestry that God is weaving together over the course of all the events of the world to bring about His Son, to bring His Messiah, to bring the Savior of the world to earth. God moved heaven and earth and nations and kingdoms and groups of people from all kinds of places so that Christ would come at just the right time and in just the right way. God does more than just keep track of history and keep track of what's going on. God is not just an all-knowing God. He is also a God who practices and has, he, 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 is, he has providence. We speak of the providence of God. God's works of providence means that He's not just in control, but that He is ordering it for a good purpose. We many times think, yes, God is in control, but we doubt His goodness and we doubt His plan, we doubt His timing. The Westminster Larger Catechism asks, what are the works of God's providence? Answers this way, God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures, ordering them in all their actions to His own glory. One reason for everything that happens is for God's glory. Why did God wait 400 years between the last prophet and sending Jesus? Jesus, God apparently, in His infinite wisdom, knew this is how He would be glorified. It is hard to be patient for that kind of time but God is at work. Of all the countless things that, that illustrate God's amazing providence, surely the most amazing is sending His own Son to, to a young woman who seems pretty obscure, in a pretty obscure town, who didn't even have a place to stay, born in a stable of sorts. And that's who God used to bring salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation to His people in just the right time. Again, this Advent season, we remember that this points forward to the, the Christ, the, that Christ has promised to return, to come back once more. And so we are all longing for that final and full salvation when all things are made right and we're aching for things to be brought in peace and justice. And yet we trust in God's providence that He is in control and He has wisdom. We will be foolish to try to play the game of predicting when Christ is going to come back. Or try to act like we know exactly when it's going to be. We, we don't know. God is wise. He is good. He has it under control. And we can trust God will be glorified. And He is perfect and righteous and holy in His timing no matter what it is. And so the question in view of God's goodness, His patience, His wisdom, His sovereignty, His providence is can we be patient? And can we trust Him? My charge to you today is this. Patiently trust God to be right on time. Patiently trust God to be right on time. If God providentially is bringing salvation right on time, we can trust Him. We can trust Him to be right on time. If you can step back and look at this enormous family tree and all these generations over hundreds of years, surely we can say, if He can orchestrate that, He can probably handle my life. 
if he can orchestrate all of the millions of people throughout Israel's history and all the kingdoms that came and went and everybody that's moving here, there, and otherwise, he probably can handle the little bit of responsibility that I've got to take care of today. If God can take care of that, he can take care of me. I hope you can see in the big picture from Abraham to Egypt to Exodus to the promised land to the kings to the temple to the exile to the return and all the way up to Jesus that God is in control. People, we, we lose our patience, but God has not. God is patient. He is just. He is holy. And He is in control. Just as He's at work in the big picture, I want to remind you that He's also at work in the small things. Jesus told us that God does not miss a single sparrow that falls from a tree. And God has numbered every single one of your hairs. That incredible God who orchestrates all the kingdoms and all the nations also takes care of every little minute detail of your life. The question is, do we trust Him? Do we trust that He is good? Do we trust that He is with us? And are we willing to wait? Are we willing to be patient? Day to day, we are tempted. I am tempted to be anxious, to be stressed, to be wanting the next thing to hurry up and be here, God. And God many times says, hold on. Hold on, I've got a purpose in this. My glory will be, I will be glorified. I will be honored. It's just going to take a little bit more time. We forget that He is God and we are not. He is wise and He is in control. We are often foolish and we are certainly not in control. One final pattern I want to point out to you in this, this uh, tree is this. Uh, Frederick Bruner is a commentator. He pointed out that the shape of this 16 verses of lineage has the shape of, a, of an italicized letter N. Okay, so stick with me here. The first part of this paragraph, first section here, is on the way up. God is showing mercy, like the first part of the letter N. We talked about the outcasts, the Ruths and the Rahabs and the, the Tamars and all these sinful people, all the things that David and everybody did, all the ways that God's people did not deserve His grace, and yet God brought them on the pathway up to experience the, the, the kingdom at the moment of David and Solomon where things were at their greatest. God in His mercy brought the people up. And yet what did we do at that pinnacle? David and Solomon and Rehoboam and everyone, the kings after that, they started descending down, down, down. God in His patience let that, that downward part of the end stretch for a long time, waiting and waiting for people to repent on their own. And they didn't. And so God brought them to a rock bottom to a rock bottom where God brought people to a deportation, to exile. He scattered them. And yet at that very moment, that bottom moment, is when things turned back up. When God began to call His people back to Him, when Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel is calling out for people to return once more to a heart that knows God and trusts in Him. And they do, and they begin to make their way back up. They begin to come back to the people of Israel, come back to the nation, come back to worship Him. And yet it doesn't go up quite as fast as they want. They're waiting. They're having to wait all this time. And finally, Christ comes. He is the exaltation. He is the climax back to the top of this story. It's an italicized in celebrating God's people and celebrating His story, His work, the arc of His, His work in the world. And the reason I point that shape out to you is that's the same shape your life often takes, is it not? You and I did not do anything to get created. God knit you and me together in our mother's womb, and He has poured out blessing upon blessing. Your life started with an up arrow. A gift, your life was a gift from God. And yet pretty quickly after that, 
we pivoted downwards. We started descending into our own sin, our own filth, the desires of our own selfish hearts. And God brought us down, down, down as we descended and God waited. And many of you have gone through a real rock bottom at some point. But for all of us, if you know Jesus, that was a rock bottom moment of recognizing I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. And in that very moment is the turning point where God brings you to himself and your life begins to come back to him the way it was intended to be. That's the whole story of your life. It's an italicized letter in. But I'll give you one more way. That's the, day, that's the story of your day to day. And here's why. It's also the story of Jesus. Jesus had all of eternity. He was with the Father in perfect glory. Things started up for him because they didn't really have a start. He's always been there. But you know, they were up. And yet Jesus in his own free will, his desire to show love, he descended from, earth, from heaven to come to earth. And he came not just in human form, but he came as a baby. And not just as a baby, but as a baby born to a poor family. And he came as a servant. And he came to offer his life. And he was willing to die, and not just to die, but to die on a cross. There is no lower moment for the Son of God who reigns supreme over all things than to be crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. And yet that very moment was the turning point for all glory. When sin and death were defeated and he had resurrected out of the grave and then ascended to be back with the Father. It's an italicized letter in. Telling the story of the gospel of the good news. And so that's why it's the pattern for your life today. You woke up today. Things started up. You got a gift. And you can do one of two things with that gift. You can try to own it for yourself and, and pursue your own glory and pursue things of your own selfish desire. Or, like Christ, you can pivot and voluntarily give it away. Serve others. Look out for the good of your neighbor. Seek to use your gifts and your opportunities as a steward of God's grace. And the further you go down, the great paradox of the Christian life is that that is the pathway up to glory. So many of us try to live in a way that is about my name, my fame, my glory, and yet Christ did the exact opposite. And He is the one who had every reason to live for His name and His glory and His majesty. The hard part is we have to be patient because sometimes the path down is a lot longer than we want it to be. We want God to hurry up and come back and make all these hard things right now. Make them better now. I want to go ahead and turn the corner up. But sometimes we have to be patient. The God in His sovereignty and His patience and His perfect judgment and perfect providence, He allows those stretches of that letter to go longer than we want them to. So we've got to be patient. We've got to trust in Him. But if we're willing to wait, along the way we see incredible views of His providence, incredible views of His majesty. We get glimpses of His grace, like when He sends a son to a manger, an ordinary family full of outcasts and sinners and obscure people we've never heard of, so that we can know Him and recognize that He is with us. The question is, will we be patient? Will we wait? Will we trust in Him?